So the other day, I attended the funeral of Harriet Einhorn, my 97-year-old cousin who lived an incredibly adventurous and spirited life. And toward the end of the service, after a bunch of eulogies were given and the rabbi delivered his final words, we all stepped forward, one after the other, to dig from a pile of dirt and place it atop Harriet's coffin. For Jews, it's a tradition of love and respect and selflessness. And as I looked down at Harriet's casket and said a silent farewell, I was reminded of the fragility of life and the importance of living vivaciously and passionately and vigorously. I'm 51 years old. The clock is ticking. You just never know when it all ends. So in honor of my cousin Harriet, whose last breath has been taken, please use a few minutes today and stop to look around and appreciate what you have. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Slinging the Egg, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Conrad Marshall, the phenomenal long-form writer for Good Weekend Magazine, the Sydney Morning Herald's weekly publication. This is episode number 310. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right. Conrad, we're making history here because last week I had my first ever ever guest from the state of Idaho. And now <laughs> I'm having my first ever guest from Australia. So that's a, is it, actually, I take that back. No, you I, interviewed somebody. Was it Nick Bonihaiti? It It was during the fires. Yes. So basically you're a loser and you're making no history whatsoever. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. You have the weirdest resume writer resume i would say or at least journey of anyone i've had on this uh, show and um we are mutual friends with michael j lewis not to be confused with moneyball michael lewis who uh, i know from delaware and you worked with the glens falls post star back in the early 2000s and um super weird resume which is you move here <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong you move here in the, in the early 2000s is it because you're why'd you move here <laughs> um, I met a girl down under, um, she was studying abroad and she was from upstate New York, this little town there. We did a whole lot of back and forth thing, but, um, long distance relationships are pretty prohibitively expensive in your twenties. So on one such trip over there, I married her and stayed and I had been doing PR, but the thing I liked most about comms and PR was the writing. And so I just started stringing for local papers as much as I could. And eventually, um, out at a bar one night, I ran into Michael J. Lewis um, and a bunch of other reporters from the Post Star. Not to be confused with Moneyball, Michael J. Lewis. Exactly right. No, this is a, a lovely little guy who was a, a gun sports writer in town. And um, yeah, we, we just, we played pool and got drunk and they, uh, we ended up back at one of their places. I think it was Lewis's house actually. And all these young journos were reading passage, like their favorite passages from a Rick Bragg book and just sort of uh, going off on how great <laughs> journalism can be. Uh, and I was sort of hooked and, managed to sort of find my way into the post-star. You're this guy leading up to this point. You never thought future in journalism. You play pool with the guy from the post-star. People start talking about how great journalism is and you decide to enter journalism. 
<laughs> no, not not quite so much like that. Like I had done some freelancing for little local papers there and I was interested in it and trying to get into it. And it was almost like meeting all these dudes who were young journos was a bit of a lucky break because they could put in a good word for me with their editors. And it wasn't long after that night out with Michael J. Lewis, not the Moneyball Lewis, um, that I, yeah, ended up um, getting an interview and getting a part-time job there and like working as a hotel desk clerk and a bus boy and all sorts of other shitty jobs um, while trying to, you know, listen to the cop scanner at night and doing the blotter and going to town board meetings and zoning meetings and covering high school sports and all sorts of crap. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but um, you have the story 2006 Glens Falls post star. It was about a runner, a local runner. And your lead was, it could be the black boots with heels or the languid flow with her long limbs and her long and her hair. But Heidi Vengel looks a lot taller than the five feet, 10 inches she measures. She looks statuesque, a perfect athletic specimen. And that stands the reason because a 42 year old accountant and bookkeeper is perhaps the greatest female athlete this region has seen. Um, that's awfully good for someone who didn't really think about being a journalist and kind of jumped into it real quick. Did you pick up the rhythms of newspaper sports writing and the rhythms of newspaper writing fairly quickly? Uh, I think I probably picked up the rhythms of magazine writing. So I don't reckon I was ever a really big newspaper reader, but I loved magazines. And when I got to the States at the time, like magazine subscriptions were so cheap. They're like 10 bucks for a year. And so me and my wife, like we subscribed to Esquire, GQ, the New Yorker, New York, um, the economist, Rolling Stone, Adirondack life. Like we had, I think, a dozen at one time and I made it a point to like read them all religiously. And so what came out of that was I wanted to write stories that were like features or what they used to call their um, enterprise stories. I wanted stories that had those big, long kind of anecdotal leads with lots of color and movement and this sense of like being there and describing something. And so just kind of by osmosis, I think reading all of that stuff, um, that was the way I tried to write. So I was probably just kind of mimicking the people that I looked up to in journalism. And it also helped that when I was employed there in Glens Falls, I was, I was in the features team. I wasn't in the sports team. So sometimes I would write sporting stories, but um, my jam was just writing general lifestyle features where you can be a little bit more colorful and have a bit more of a flourish in the way you do things. Wait, so when you, um, when you were reading the magazines, were you like when I was back, I remember being back in college at Delaware and I would study Sports Illustrated when people say, what do you mean by study it? Every transition, every word choice, every sort of flow, how someone led a story, how someone ended a story, how the quotes were used. I really considered those almost like textbooks to me. Um, when you and your wife are getting these magazines, are you studying the magazines or are you just reading them and learning because you're just reading? No, I was studying them too. Yeah, same sort of thing. And I would put certain stories aside, you know, really, really great ones where like, I just couldn't conceive of how they had done what they'd done or, or examples where I thought I can use that device in some way. Um, I, can, um, I can try to kind of put my own spin on it. And sometimes that worked out really well and other times it didn't, but it meant I was trying really new things um, all the time and, and began to kind of figure out what worked for me and, and how my 
own sort of style and my voice would come out like you you and every listener to this podcast would know the the falling man by tom juno just blew me away blew everyone away i think in my first my first assignment when i went to a bigger paper the florida times union in jacksonville um, I had told my new editor there how much I loved the the Juno piece, and gee, it would be amazing to write something of that not not of that caliber. Nobody writes it that caliber, but of that ilk. This this the journey story, right? Where you're searching for something, maybe you don't find it, but you learn something in the search. And he was like, "I've got this great thing." There was this guy downtown, a kind of a homeless, a notorious homeless man who was caught on camera taking a shit in downtown Jacksonville and the video of it went viral because some sports writer or somebody was in town at the restaurant um, just outside where he, where he took the shit. I think like Tony Kornheiser. Uh Um, And so, yeah, my editor's first idea for a story for me down there was the pooping man, find the pooping man. And, you know, I did, I spent like months looking around town, going to homeless shelters, talking to the lawyers, talking to the cops, digging up his arrest records and trying to tell a story about homelessness and how people fall through the cracks, um, through the lens or prism of this, this search for one individual. And it was all on the basis of going, that's how somebody told a story in Esquire in this amazing way. Maybe I could do something sort of similar not up to the level but sort of similar so do you find your do you think it is okay i don't know if tom juno uses a certain word you like or a certain structure you like or kind of has a lead that works for you are you of the imitation is the greatest form of flattery sort of camp do you find yourself lifting stuff from other writers and incorporating into your own work yeah absolutely i think if if it's a methodology you're you're lifting that's i think that's fine and that's fair game because there are so many methods and formats that we rely on anyway and we don't really know where they came from like you know you read a long feature story in SI or any other magazine you get to that bit where it goes where it flashes back and you tell the story so and so was born here and his parents were there well that's you know that's a device it's not a particularly elaborate one but it's something that people do so I don't know if everybody's doing that then I have no issue with, uh, yeah, lifting right. methodology. Yeah. So you jump from um, Jacksonville to Indianapolis. And it's interesting because you're at the Indianapolis Star. And I found a uh, found a piece you wrote. This is from uh, April 8th, 2009. And the headline was, IMA's new website brings art to video. Website, two words, by the way. Um, and the lead was, art lovers have a new way to interact with the creative world thanks to a website launched thursday by the indianapolis museum of art that's devoted entirely to art-based video content and i bring up this article because in my career i've had to write a million articles just like this and i wonder like as a guy who reads tom Janot and probably like gary smith or rick Riley and all these guys when you're sitting here working for american newspapers and you have to write 500 words on a new website are you banging your head against a wall or do you view it as sort of part of the journey i hated it but um <laughs> but i always really loved fine art like visual arts and i loved writing about artists that's probably what i started doing when i was in glens falls at the post star it was you know you're writing for the lifestyle section so you write about painters and potters and all sorts of things and 
in indie, that was something that I wanted to carve out for myself. I was like, all right, if I'm going to write the good stories, the the juicy, interesting ones about artists in town, well, I probably have to try and cover that beat well. And part of that is writing the the daily news, the the 400 and 500 word stories with the inverted pyramid lead, and um, and they're horribly boring, but you get out there and you make contacts with people. I don't know that it ever led to anything great in India. I'm not sure I wrote a a great story about an artist there or not, Um, but you learn. Don't give me the obvious answer here unless you actually believe it. Like, do you feel like all those lessons about the inverted pyramid and sort of here are the devices you can use and the devices you can't use. And, um, you know, I'm sure editors telling you, you can't do this. You can do that. You can do this. You can't do that. Don't do this, do that. Do you feel like that stuff, help build you as a writer or do you feel like that stuff got in the way of you becoming a better writer? I reckon I was just very lucky that I never had to get taught too much of that stuff. Like I didn't do journalism um, at university. I did an arts degree, like majoring in philosophy and psychology and anthropology, that kind of stuff. Um, And just sort of found my way into journalism through other means. So I never got taught inverted pyramids and certainly there weren't many editors that needed to take me under the wing and show me those ropes because as I said I started in features I was very lucky to sort of start in features so yeah I didn't have to unlearn any of it to write the way that I write now because I've been trying to write in that magazine style from the very beginning all right so you uh you went from Indianapolis you become a U.S. Australian dual citizen in 2009 also That's in right. you moved back to Melbourne um, why? Uh, I just felt like it was time. It was about seven years that we were over there. Um, I missed my family, missed, um, Australian rules football. I'm a, I'm a tragic for that game. Um, and yeah, it just felt like the right move. I remember, you know, my wife and I talking about it and like the pros and cons of moving and we're like, ah, oh, you know, there's so much sort of political strife in America and gun violence and, troubles with sort of the health system or the education system. And, but they were sort of largely theoretical at at that time. Nothing seemed that bad. We were just forecasting, but God almighty, um, so much has changed uh, in the 13 odd years since we moved back um, to Oz. It it feels like a really prescient decision to have, um, to have come home, but it was tricky to find journalism work immediately. Like the, the experience at US newspapers didn't seem to count for too much. And there's a very different ecosystem of newspapers over here. You sort of have, you have the big ones within cities. So you have a, a broadsheet and a tabloid in each um, major city. And they're the, the big ones that you want to work for. And then after that, there's sort of almost like no middle road newspapers. There aren't, there just aren't enough cities. There aren't enough, um, regional centers that are going to have a daily newspaper. Like I was blown away that Glens Falls, New York, this little town of, I don't know, 30, 40,000 people had a daily five section broadsheet newspaper. That's ridiculous. Like that's a country town in Australia and they would be lucky to have like a weekly penny saver in a place like that. So there was a different ecosystem and that made it tough to get a job down here because you're like, well, do I want to try to work for one of those? No. Um, so I have to go for one of the, for a job at the big boys. And that was much harder to, to land, but right. got lucky, 
found my way in through a side door to a like a, a monthly magazine that circulated with The Age, which is sort of a big broadsheet newspaper in Melbourne, like the, I don't know, kind of like a, a New York Times of Australia. You wrote a piece recently. I kind of want to dig into this. You wrote a piece I freaking loved. And um, I don't think this is one you sent me, although I could be wrong. It um, From IGA to the Arias, via Glastonbury and Gucci, Amy Taylor's Rock and Rise. I just want to read your lead, which is kind of fucking kicks ass. The story was from late last year. It's it's 9.50 p.m. on a Friday in September, 10 minutes to showtime at the Hell's Kitchen music venue called Terminal 5, and the Manhattan punters are wired and waiting for the trademark fury of ammo and the sniffers to tear shit up. Inside the green room, however, the ascendant Aussie pub punk band is in quiet repose. Ne'er-do-well mates come and go from the heavily trafficked backstage area. Bottles of Smirnoff and cans of Bud Light are necked. Chips are dipped. Smoke's lit. A spliff rolled. Drummer Bruce uh, Bryce Wilson wearing a crop mullet, Parramatta Eos top, and Western Bulldog shorts arrives from a bar downtown, proclaiming his sobriety. I'm not wasted, he protests, grinning. I am not wasted. Guitarist Declan Martins laughs, sipping a Yerba Mate tea and debating the set list, wondering whether they should play Monsoon Rock tonight or not. We can push security down, he notes, and I don't give a fuck about Westgate. Things are always relaxed pre-show, and the bassist Gus Romer, the band's ranger-raconteur, explains why. We don't know anything else, he says, shrugging. It's, re- it's really freaking good. The fly-on-the-wall journalism thing that used to be very prominent here isn't nearly as prominent because access is just not what it used to be. It's not what it used to be with sports. It's not what it used to be with music. Places are very nervous. There's a million different publicists fucking everything up. Yep. Um, how do you get this level of access and then how do you become a fly on the wall and make sure they are not behaving in such a way because you are there? Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to get really lucky. We have the same issues with access, particularly around athletes. Like they are the worst to try and be a fly on the wall around. But with someone like Amy, I was really lucky. So that story, it got suggested to me by a colleague in the age newsroom, a guy who's mates with her boyfriend. And so I, I was lucky to have that person on the inside vouching for me. Like Conrad's good. He'll treat you well. Like you should let this guy in. And then because they're punks, um, they're, they're up for whatever, right? Like they didn't mind exposing anything of themselves. So that lead, it, it had a, all that stuff about chips dipped, smokes lit. A spliff is rolled. Well, it also had like the the guitarist going to me. Um, and this Conrad is how we test our cocaine for fentanyl, and then doing a bump in front of me. And that was like written into the story because they were perfectly happy with that. I, I call back later. Hey, are you sure that it's it's like okay to have you doing blow um, in this you know national magazine piece? And they're like, yeah, yeah, no issues. Um, we like our editors decided to take it out because we didn't want to be seen to condoning drug use, but um, yeah, they're, they're punks, right? So they're happy to have all their nastiness sort of on display. Um, And I just felt really lucky. And I mean, I had to work hard to get it done. Like I was on holiday in the U S when that scene was happening. It was like my sister-in-law's wedding was the next day. I was like, sorry, babe, I'm going to drive to New York City, which is like three and a half hours away from um, from Glens Falls and stay in a hotel overnight and go hang out with some punks, uh, but I'll be back in the morning. Um, and it was just for that scene. I was like, I know 
that there will be something at this gig in New York City that I can write up as my lead and I'll do all the other interviews sort of at home. And yeah, every now and again, those things kind of come off. Maybe maybe it was partly because they were impressed that I was willing to do that, you know, to give up a bunch of holiday free time to come see them. Um, I don't know, but I was really wrapped with the openness. So do you have to, when you, when you, you're in New York and you want to go to the show, are you just going straight through the band? Are you calling like Bryce Wilson or someone and saying, Hey, can I come to show? Or do you have to go through their quote unquote handler? I had to go through the handler early. Like I had to organize that a few weeks in advance. I was like, I know I'm going to be in New York. I know they're going to be in New York. Do you reckon that, you know, be okay with me coming along? I don't just want to see the show. I need some time with them. I thought it might just be like 10 minutes of chatting before the show. But then when I got there well early, they were just like, yeah, just hang out. You want a beer? Um, and so I was there all night in the green room with them, which was, which was amazing. Um, you just have to get that, I guess, that combination of a really a handler that gets it and a subject who's not too self-aware um, and is just willing to go along for the ride because they know it'll make a better story. All right, so I have a couple of questions here. Number one, are you actually writing that? Do you have a notepad out and are you taking notes as this stuff is going on? Or do you worry about that, reminding them, that being a reminder to them, oh, wait, this is a journalist in our presence? With stuff like that, I know that I can piece a lot of it together later. So, and I also know that there'll be lull moments or moments where I'll need to go take a piss or something. And so I brought my notebook. I don't remember sketching anything down, but what I do is hold my little voice recorder up when I'm in the room next door and go chips a dip, a spliff's rolled, smokes a lit. The near do well mates are, you know, coming and going. Amy's hair is done up. You know, I think it was, yeah. Bryce Wilson said, you know, I am not drunk. I am not wasted. Sorry. But, yeah, so I take notes that way. I, I take little notes to myself verbally and then listen to them later. Okay, and when they say, well, let's say someone says, hey, you the drummer is like, hey, you want a beer. Can you say yes? Yeah, I think you can. Absolutely. You, you've got to understand that there's a, there's a compact between you, um, that it is a relationship, uh, albeit a, a short-term one that you're having with them. Um, but... Uh, but it makes it difficult if you've got to write something harsh about someone later. And I do, I do hate that. And I do struggle with that. Um, I've got a story coming out in a few days about a, uh, a musical theater producer in Australia, a big one. Um, and they were great. They gave me lots of access. I spent a lot of time with this guy, um, with his company, went to see a lot of shows. Um, but, the show that I saw of his in New York that came out, it was um, based on that movie, Almost Famous, uh-huh. Cameron Crowe's. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, like coming of age story as a, as a rock journal. So there was a musical based on that and it flopped. Like I saw it and it flopped, it collapsed. And then because it's a profile, you've got to find some of the sort of the details about their, their life that maybe they don't want out there, like opinions of them from competitors or things like that. And so I feel like the day or two before a story comes out, I'm always so nervous because I have built up this little short-term relationship with this person. I generally like the people 
that I talk to. Um, and yeah, I worry about burning them. I do worry about whether they'll be happy or not, whether they'll like it. And I know that they, you know, sometimes I just flat out know that they won't and that kind of sucks, you know, but just on a human level. Oh man, it's a freaking recurring theme. I feel like of my life and also this podcast, which is, I feel like as I get older, I do question more and more what we do and whether it's okay. Like, because yeah. we work yeah. to make these people so comfortable and all we want them to do is open up to us. But that doesn't mean we're going to like go easy on them. And then they're like, what the fuck did you do? Yeah. I thought we were buds. No, it's, um, what was that line from line of Janet Malcolm? Every, uh, every journalist who isn't sort of, it was like every journalist who isn't too dumb to know what's going on or whatever knows that what he or she does is like morally reprehensible or like he's a, he's a confidence man, a trickster, a shyster. And I feel that way so often. Like I know that what I'm doing, that what I'm writing is entertaining or I'm, tr- I'm trying to make it entertaining for these readers. That's who you've got to serve ultimately, but it doesn't make me any less uneasy about what we do with the subjects themselves. Yeah. And I feel like if you reach an older age in this business, I'm not saying you're an older age, but certainly I'm at 50. So I'm getting there. Like if you're not questioning it, something's wrong with you. Like something is actually broken. And if you, if you can do this job for this number of decades and not sometimes look in the mirror and think, wow, I'm kind of a scumbag. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. It's funny that it doesn't get easier, that it actually gets harder. Oh my God. I mean, that's a topic all to itself. It doesn't even get remotely easier because you, number one, you become much more of a perfectionist. And number two, if you're any sort of human being with normal development, you become more self-aware and then you become more self-loathing. And then you really start wondering why you didn't go to dental school. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's why I try to choose subjects that I really, really like, right? People that um, seem sort of infallible and that you can only write great things about like you write a profile of a lovely dude, like Patty Mills, you can make it, you can still make it deeply interesting um, and everything. But, but he just happens to be this brilliant stand up guy. Like it's so much harder when they're, um, when they're conflicted individuals. Yeah. Um, we have a few more questions about the story. Number one, you said you called to make sure they were okay with you mentioning the Coke. I have to say, and it's funny coming off of what we just discussed. I think me being kind of an asshole, I wouldn't have. I would kind of think to myself, you gave me this access and that's a really good scene and I'm going to use it. Now, again, that makes me kind of an asshole. Did you debate whether to call them and mention it? Were you? Did you debate whether, I know you said it got taken out eventually, did you debate whether to use it at all? Um, look, I didn't. I definitely wanted it in um, and it just felt like a courtesy to ask them. I wasn't freaked out by it. Um, it was actually it was raised by a sub editor. So they were like, what this guy is doing is illegal. He's an Australian traveling in the U S um, he's going to need to go back to the U S um, again and again to tour because that's what they do. You could very well be putting his chances of getting another visa to travel in the States um, in jeopardy. So do you need to ask him? I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah, I do. I do. So it didn't occur to me instantly. And then I also thought about the fact that like what we were saying before, I wasn't sketching all this down. I wasn't sitting there with a notepad 
I was telling myself these things later off to the side. So you've got to remind yourself as well that, I mean, not so much with them, but with a lot of people, they haven't had that kind of exposure to journalism. They don't know that everything that they're doing in front of you is being potentially mined and put on the page. Even people who have been written about a lot before, they might think this interaction is solely about what I say in response to Conrad's questions. They might think that that's the content that goes into an article. They might not have any realisation that every little thing they do in my presence is is something I'm taking down mental notes on. Do you know what I mean? Like I do, because it's really interesting, because on the one hand, that can work for you very, very well. You know, like on the one hand, the less savvy they are. I mean, again, it goes back to this being kind of a yucky profession, like the light yet less savvy they are. Sometimes the better served we are, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is like confession. Um, you wrote, uh, she wears a, a single shoulder top of glittering gold briefs of the same flashy fabric and is headbanging with such recklessness that I worry for her spinal cord. This is a topic I enjoy. There's obviously a thing in journalism. Don't put yourself in the story. Don't put yourself in the story. You shouldn't put yourself in the story. And Mm. every now and then you put yourself in this story. How much do you weigh that, if at all? And do you even buy at all the don't put yourself in a story sort of philosophy of journalism? I do not. I do not buy it at all. Well, no, I don't. (laughs) I I don't mind the uh, the vertical pronoun, as they say. I've what I feel is that the pieces that I grew up reading and love the most had that element in it. And when you insert yourself into the narrative, you're kind of like you're inserting the reader into the narrative. You're letting them know what it's like to be there, to see this thing, to feel it. Like if you're a if you're a writer that's going to interview the president and you're nervous about it, what's wrong with like with saying so? It would tell the reader something about what that experience is like walking up to that door and like, you know, knocking on the Oval Office. Like it, it gives them something as well. So I will say that um, other people hate it. <laughs> there are lots of journos who hate it. Um, and I just have to, I reckon, deal with the fact that there would be people who don't like the the way that I write um, that would think doing that too often is really, I don't know, just self-indulgent. But I just, I really do believe that it serves the story in some way, that it makes the scenes that you're trying to recreate more real for, for them. How do you know that other journalists don't like that you do it? Oh, not me personally, but um, I just imagine that, I, I just know that there are journos who, who hate that idea, who really just think we should be at a complete remove. Um, sometimes when I hear them say that, I'm like, shit, have you ever read any of my stuff? You're like, you might not know it, but you're openly criticizing me right now. <laughs> and actually, if you think about it, it's definitely one of those things you learn as a young journalist, don't put yourself in the story. And then you think about it and it actually makes no sense because in a way, especially with feature writing, the number one job is I mean, the number one question I think readers would ask a writer is, what was he like? What was that like? What did it smell like? What was the, what was it like? Which the natural way to answer is, well, 
I blank. I sat across yeah. from her. I saw her lipstick. It was bright red. I blah, blah, blah. So it is a weird thing that I think we've brainwashed ourselves into believing that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a, there's a guiding kind of principle that, I, I learned really early on in journalism from a, I heard this guy speak at a, at a national writers conference in like Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut. I must've been like early twenties. His name is um, Thomas French. He won the Pulitzer prize. Um, I think a couple of times for feature writing. He was down at the, the St. Petersburg times or the, the Tampa Bay times, same, same newspaper as Lane de Gregory, like just the, like incubator for narrative nonfiction in newspapers. Brilliant, brilliant writer. And he he gave this sort of speech at the conference. It was his Ten Commandments for journalism. I don't remember what the other nine were, but one of them was about details. And it was like, always get the name of the dog, um, the brand of the beer, and the title of the song that was playing as the car crashed off the road. Wow. I was like, whoa, oh, yes, shit. exactly. Because you want to know the name of the dog and the breed of the dog because it says something about the person, right? The name that they, they gave it, the the little dog that they chose or the big one or the, the one that runs, the one that just sleeps in a corner. You want to know the brand of the beer because there's a big fucking difference between drinking like a Jenny Cream Ale and drinking a Left Blonde. You know, um, and then the title of the song that was playing as the car crashed off the road, that's just like, that's aspirational, right? That's search for the detail, search for the un- ungettable detail. It's try to recreate a moment by reaching for something so absurd, but that will put the reader in that, in that moment completely. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but that, um, that's always stuck with me when I taught journalism. I used to teach it to my students as well. Um, and I just think it um, it stands you in good stead and the readers in good stead too. This is going to sound slightly self-indulgent, but I just want to say, because that was a brilliant freaking moment there. And I, I loved everything you said there. I wrote a biography of Walter Payton years ago and Walter Payton, when he was, he won the Super Bowl with the Chicago bears. And um, years later, he was a JV basketball coach. And one um, weekend, he before weekend, he, he was talking to his team about trust and he took off his Super Bowl ring and he gave it to one of his players and said, I trust you the way you should trust this team. I'm trusting you with my Super Bowl ring for the weekend. Bring it back on Monday. Well, the kid goes home. He has a party that night. They're passing the ring around. The ring gets lost. He has to go back on Monday and tell Walter Payton he lost his ring. And for he never finds it, okay? Never finds it. Oh, my God. The... The, the kid who had the ring had a couch in his basement and a friend years later was going to like Purdue university and was moving there. And he took his, they gave him the couch to take. So this family gave the family friend a couch. And one day, years and years later, he, his, he has a dog at college and his dog is digging at something under the couch, digging, <laughs> digging, digging. And the guy digs under, reaches under and it's Walter Payton's Super Bowl ring that slid under the couch at that party. Years later, the couch is now Purdue University. The dog's name was Bailey. And I've always <laughs> said, that is the best detail I've ever found in my life. And I remember Mike Lewis, actually, of all people being like, how the fuck did you get the name of the dog? Yeah, right? It's a win. Searched. I'm low. Asked it. That's awesome. By the way, that Janet Malcolm quote, 
Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. And it's like, it's a very harsh way to look at it, but kind of true. Yeah, I can't, like, I can't. We are selling trust. Aren't we kind of selling trust? Like we're selling trust. Yeah. Now that we both realize we're, we're total, complete, awful losers. Um, <laughs> okay. In this piece, you write about Amy Taylor's childhood and you wrote, um, her mom worked at the post office before studying and practicing psychology. Dad was a tradie, a crane driver and a bottle shop worker who built their house out of rocks he picked up in his ute. Until Amy was nine, they lived in a shed, all sharing a single upstairs bedroom divided by curtains. Candles were kept handy for blackouts. Water seeped through the cracks when it stormed. It was really wholesome living off the land. I loved it, Taylor says, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you do a bunch of paragraphs about childhood. And I'm actually always fascinated by this, especially when I write books. Do you worry about getting too bogged down in background when you're writing about a present person? I'm not saying you did here. I think you did it really well. But is there a concern with boring the fuck out of the reader because you feel it's important to give this person's background when really it's not as interesting as you would like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely at times. And you can you can break it up later. So the way that I tend to write is I pour everything out onto the page, um, quotes, color, um, research, and put it all in chronological order. And I can look at that like 10,000, 12,000 word document um, before I need to sharpen it. And I can see the shape of it. I can see, oh, my God, 60% of what I've gathered, this this fucking tremendous amount of material is is backstory. How much of it can I use without kind of boring the reader? And I don't think I've ever really figured out what the, the ratio is. It's, it's different for every story, obviously. Um, but the trick I haven't learned, which I, I need to kind of refine, and I reckon um, Gay Talese was probably the master of it, is just finding moments within the story to inject the right moments of backstory. Do you know what I mean? So when they're, mm-hmm. when they're talking about something current, some personality trait, it's like then you have this little nugget from childhood or from their teenage years, and then you move back into the narrative that you're actually telling. And it's a, it's a really good way of doing it, but it's artful. I haven't ever quite nailed it. And yeah, it was just something I've got to improve on. Don't you find like every now and then you read someone, like I'll read like a, a Ray Thompson piece. This is an example. And you think like, I don't know how they did that. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's not in my tool kit that I can do that. I don't know. Do you have moments like that where you're like, I just can't, I don't quite get how they did that. Yeah. uh, Mainly like I, I don't see how you found the connection or the moment to sort of slide into one idea and then back out to another. I I just, I I look at a passage and go, it would never have occurred to me. Never. Um, And it's infuriating, (laughs) but all you can do is is uh, is watch and learn, I guess. Wait, it's actually really interesting. There was a story I saw today. I'm not going to say the writer, but there was a story about the the Los Angeles Clippers plane was struck by lightning a few weeks ago. That the paragraph before the uh, transitionary paragraph, if you want to call it that, was shortly after the Clippers landed safely in Colorado, the team saw a mark 
that took some of the paint off the tail of the Delta Airlines plane. And then the next paragraph was, if the Clippers could survive this, Coach Tyron Lue figured his team could certainly navigate any turbulence they experienced on the court after February's edition. And I'm like, no, you cannot transition (laughs) off of almost dying in a plane crash to having to play the Nuggets next week. I'm just not, I'm not allowing that. I'm not, not, guy's a good writer. I'm not allowing that. That is not allowed. And I find transitions really, like the way some people are able to just, you don't even realize there was a transition is kind of masterful. Do you feel like you are in full control of your transitionary efforts? I think so. Cause I, I think there are like a few different ways of doing them. There are natural kind of progressions. Then there are like, like, I mean, in terms of the chronology and then there are kind of thematic ones. You, you mentioned something or that somebody is quoted and it's about a certain subject. So you go, all right, we're going to go in that direction. Sometimes it's just a playful word. Like I can see a, a word that was mentioned in one quote and I can play off that and go into another. And if you have a, enough of them in the kit bag, you can always make it work. And then the fail safe, the really, you know, the, the thing we're fortunate to have when we're doing long form magazine stories is like just fucking stop right there and then start again. Have that little page break. Right. That's fantastic. Like I can't. I've got nowhere to go. Oh well, I'll just stop and then I'll write another anecdotal lead into a new section. It's an amazing luxury. I hundred percent agree. It's my favorite part of books is you can just do that. If you read my like my old college articles though, it'll be like, and that's when I found out about the cancer spreading throughout my body. Another cancer is the point guard position. Where, the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do exactly that. Hopefully, in um, hopefully in better fashion. Before we continue with two writers thinking Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, who's taking the AP test tomorrow. Man, advanced placements are no joke. Advanced placements? Dad, I take gym, basket weaving, Celtic dance, theories with Kanye West, and the history of cured meat. Do you really think I'm taking advanced placement tests? So, what's the AP? It's a test sponsored by Royal Retros, the kings of throwback sports merchandise. They want to make sure all their spokespeople at royalretros.com are up to speed. I, I don't get it. AP, Azusa Pacific, where Christian Okoye carried the rock. AP, Anthony Prado, Twins outfielder, batting 152. AP, Arnold Palmer, golf legend. AP, I'm so confused. Why am I paying your tuition? Don't worry, Dad. It all goes to my Coke dealer. All right, so you wrote another piece, uh, Life Changes Tomorrow, What Happened When Pro Basketball's Isaac Humphreys Came Out. And this is uh, a Melbourne United basketball player named Isaac Humphreys, who probably none of my listeners have ever heard of before, which is all good. And this came out in February. And um, it's a really gripping piece, again, about this basketball player, Isaac Humphreys, who right now is the only out professional basketball player, as you suggest, you noted, on the planet. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in sort of this, like, getting someone to trust you to write his story, getting someone to be okay opening up to you not really knowing you super well, but saying, all right, this is a guy I can talk to about this and it should work out. Okay. How did you get Isaac Humphreys to feel okay and comfortable with you? Uh, again, I was, I was pretty lucky to get that access. I mean, it goes without saying, and you would have experienced this at SI too, right? That the, the publication that you write for 
gives you a certain cachet. Like they're not so much agreeing to be profiled by Conrad Marshall. They're agreeing to be profiled by Good Weekend magazine, that kind of thing. So that helped. Yeah. And then the uh, the CEO of the team that he plays for, Melbourne United, um, just happened to be the husband of a, a woman who was profiled in the magazine last year. And that woman loved the profile. So inst- there it is, like the leader of the, the organisation that Isaac plays for knows and loves the magazine. So that helps as well. Um, I had been showing a bit of interest in basketball players or whatever coaches over the over the last couple of years. So I was able to point to and say, here's my profile of like loudmouth um, Andrew Bogut. Here's my profile of uh, Patty Mills. Here's my profile of Ben Simmons. So they're like, okay, well, this guy's written long form pieces about players. So that all helps. Um and then you just, I don't know, you can send them sort of samples of your work. And and then it, when you're sitting down with the guy, I was just, I was forewarned. He's a talker. Like, he's a sharer. So, yeah. I was just lucky in that sense that he was willing to sort of lay it all out on the line and happen to have a really kind of compelling tale to tell. I got almost all of that in just one sitting with the guy. I mean, it was hours on end, but um, but, yeah, he just... I just said, just start at the beginning. Tell me everything. Start at the beginning. And it was great. All right. I want to say something. I really want to emphasize this for people who listen to this podcast, especially young writers. You do something here that I freaking love. And I feel like is way, way, way overlooked and probably undervalued, which is you take something super hyper small and you make it in a way one of the major focuses of this, which is in this story, you wrote here, um, you had a quote from someone. He said, I don't think these questions are fair questions, but they are questions that often follow these stories. Who cares? And you wrote to many, that's a legitimate thing to ask, often justified with yet more re- rhetorical questions. We live in enlightened times, don't we? Same sex marriage is legal, isn't it? Haven't we had gay politicians and high court judges and celebrity chefs and comedians? Didn't Ian Roberts come out while playing for top flight NRL all the way back in 1995? Honestly, what's the big deal? And then moving forward a little, indeed, if your reflex reaction to such news is who cares, then please read on. Allow Humphreys to meet the two word question with a 200 word answer given after a midweek team training session. And I love that you took this sort of like the common refrain now when someone comes out is, oh, we don't care anymore. Who cares? And it's Mm -hmm. meant to be like, we're so enlightened that we don't care. And you have this guy who's actually kind of saying, you should care. This is why you should care. It's not. And I just, how did you even come to that? I'm going to make it. This is going to be one of my focuses. This is idea of the very question, who cares whether someone comes out? Yeah. Um, That that sort of just emerged uh, after I'd done a lot of the reporting. You know, you're hanging out with friends, um, other journos, editors, and they're like, what are you working on? Oh, I'm doing a profile of Isaac Humphreys. He's that basketball player who came out as, as gay. Um, they're like, oh, really? Who cares? And they're, and, and you're sort of, you're taken aback by it at first because you think, is there something homophobic there? And it's like, no, they're just, they're just trying to convey how enlightened, as you say, that they, that they are, that the enlightened times that we live in. But, it just kept coming up again and again. And I couldn't believe the kind of casual dismissiveness of it. Um, 
and I was really, I was kind of concerned because I was like, I've always wanted to tell one of these stories um, of, of an athlete coming out ever since I'd read um, Gary Smith's, uh, Gary Smith did a profile of a rugby player, Gareth Thomas, I think it was. Um, and it was, you know, it was Gary Smith, so it was amazing. Um, and yeah, I'd always wanted to tell that kind of story and now I'd come across one and he'd agreed to do it and all the people that I tell, all the journos, all the friends, all the family members are like, who cares? It's like, well, we, we do need to care. We should care. Homophobia is rife and is is not something that is in the past. Um, and, yeah, I'm going to start my piece there. Absolutely. And I, and I then did a lot of extra reporting going back to – gay people in the in um or people in the gay community and saying hey have you have you heard that that phrase like who cares when one of these stories happens and they're like oh my god the who cares brigade they come out every time and it, and i realized then that it was this it was a thing like that it needed to become the focus of the story and because it's a question it became a really easy way to formulate a story right the story is the answer to the question I really like you interviewed a a behavioral scientist named Eric Dennison, and he wrote, when the sporting world collectively cheered Humphreys, Dennison sat quietly horrified by the absence of any broader introspection, this illusion of inclusion. Amanda's told us that he wanted to die because his sexuality wasn't compatible with the game he loves. It should shock us into action. And then you had a quote from him. Instead, it's like there's no problem to be solved, as if we just need to celebrate his bravery. Because Isaac's story is a symptom of a problem that had been ignored and ignored and ignored. This is fucking great, man. It's a great, great profile. You listen to this podcast. At least you have told me you listen to this podcast. You know I'm required to ask every guest what's the best confrontation they've had in your in their career as a journalist. Conrad, do you have a good confrontation story? No, I don't. And I, I'm listening to this podcast for so long, and I hear you asking that question, and I. Like, what am I going to tell him? Like, what's my answer to this question? I really, uh, particularly with sports, you know, I've always been writing about, I don't know, superstars that are, as I said, like Patty Mills, people who are, who are lovely. So I don't know. The biggest confrontation, it wasn't even really with the athlete himself, was probably a, I did profile Ben Simmons last year, and it probably went in a way that his family wasn't as thrilled with as they thought they were going to be. Maybe they thought it was going to look a little different and they were really upset afterwards and told me that um, they couldn't believe what I had done, that Ben was really upset, um, that the family was too, the, that I'd included this and included that. And, the, and I get that. I really do. Because you pitch to these people and you go, you know, I, I want to tell a good story about your son, I think he's insanely talented. I don't know what's gone wrong in the course of his career that it's slid this way, but I want to look at the future and hopefully see how he's going to emerge and hopefully, you know, improve and get better and get get back to being an all-star. And and they like that idea and they let you in. And then, and then you have to tell this story that runs over his kind of litany of problems on court and mental health issues that contribute to that and and that really evaluate who he is. And it ultimately they just, they didn't like it, but they called me later. They called me much, much later. We're like, I've actually had a moment to reflect on that. 
sorry we reacted that way. We can see what you were trying to do. It was just a little bit of a shock at the time. Um, and I console myself with the fact that that story was actually like a, a bit of a Rorschach test. I got a lot of people coming to me going, oh, my God, that Simmons piece. What a fucking asshole. You just you gave him every bit of rope to hang himself. I can't believe those quotes, that kind of thing. And then other people would come up to me and go, that's like the best PR that Ben Simmons is ever going to get. Like you've fully explained like what went into it. Athletes need to take note and open up more because it'll lead to greater understanding of who they are. And so if, if I'm getting those two kinds of responses in equal measure from people, like now I understand this poor kid and what a spoiled brat. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully I've done it well. But no, no big confrontations, just the Simmons family being a little bit pissed about that profile. When the family reaches out, do you dread that call? I'm the guy who wants to hide under the desk. I'm terrified. <laughs> and fortunately, on the, in the first instance, like I said call or chat, and it wasn't. It was like it was a series of texts. And I was in New York City at the time for something else. And, yeah, the story landed. And I got this first one, like, just seen the story, Conrad. Oh, my God. And that was the first text. I was like, oh, maybe, you know, she really liked it. She's going to send a follow-up text with, like, <laughs> how great it was. And instead, it was just, I cannot believe you've done this. Um, I'm just, I'm honestly in shock and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. Cannot stand the day that a story gets published. It's almost never fun. I did a story years ago, I don't know, five, 2017, about a New Orleans Pelicans player named Bryce DeJohn Jones. And he had been shot and killed in Dallas. And his family opened up to me. And, you know, the mom lost her son. This was her son. And um, story comes out. And I got a text from the mom. And she said something like, it's almost like he's been killed again. Oh God. And that's the thing. Like you do ask you, you have to ask yourself, was me writing this story worth it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is there even a reason I'm doing it? Is there a reason? And I don't know. Eh, it's just, you know, it just kind of sucks. Um, yeah. That's the thing. I, there's not like a really high ideal behind what I do. Like there lots of journalists have that, you know, they want to hold, um, you know, hold power to account and, all sorts of things um, that want to make the world a better place. I write for Good Weekend magazine because when I was 13 and 14 growing up, it was what I read of the newspaper. I picked it up every Saturday and devoured it and loved the being transported into these other worlds with these 5,000-word stories, you know, a profile of actor Ewan McGregor and the writer is sitting down with him in a cafe in Dublin or, you know, a profile of an athlete or a story about the inner workings of the horse racing industry, whatever it was. But I loved being entertained by the words that were on the page. And that's why I do it. So it does, you know, it does become kind of hard to justify because that's all I'm trying to do is entertain. Let me ask you a final, final question. Mm. Why are we on Twitter? I don't know because, um, so we get really good breakdowns of like where our readers come from digitally. Mm. So you get all the, all the figures on like, of course, how many clicks and how much engagement, like how long they read. You can see on average how far down the story they go before they drop out. But you also get really advanced metrics on where those clicks come from. 
And one thing that has not changed for us, uh, at least here over the last 10 years or so, is we get nothing from Twitter. Like Twitter is this infinitesimally small source of readers. So we're on there to kind of amuse ourselves, I guess, and just see what's going on. But it's it's so horrible and polarized. And sometimes I feel like I'm on it just because I'm like, hate scrolling what is it doom scrolling yeah of course like but but i'm i'm reading it to get worked up like when i lived in the states early on i used to watch a little bit of fox news just to watch bill o'reilly and get super pissed at him like incredulous over it and i think sometimes that's all i'm doing on twitter is getting myself worked up for nothing i'm with you let me ask you a final, final, final question. Okay. Eli Saslow just went from the Washington Post to the New York Times. I don't know if you know Eli's work, but great, great, great. I do. My God, yeah. that piece about the uh, after Sandy Hook. Oh, yeah. He's great. My God. Okay. He left for the New York Times from the Washington Post. The Washington Post calls you tomorrow. Conrad, we want you here. We will pay you whatever, 400000 a year, and we want you to do what Eli did, but you got to move back to the States. Are you in? <laughs> yeah, probably. To do what Eli does. Well, I remember, was he on? You've had him on the podcast before? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. I think I've listened to that one, unless it was an interview he did on long form. And it was like he writes six stories a year, something like that. Yeah. Um, of course, they're shatteringly good. But then again, maybe I wouldn't. The pressure, the pressure would be pretty great to be in that position, like writing six stories a year in a publication like that. Yeah. You can't fuck it up. Um, and I do like writing about Aussie rules football. I'd miss it too much. Forget it. If the New Yorker called me, I would. <laughs> I talked to my people there, see if I can hook you up. I just want to say Michael J. Lewis comes through. Great guest, <laughs> great writer. I think we share our frustrations and, and the hells of this business, yet we keep coming back because we love it. So that's a, uh, and uh, I appreciate you doing this. And I appreciate you actually being a listener of this podcast, which makes, I think gives me one Australian listener and that's it. So whenever I look at the metrics, and I see one, Australia. I know you listen. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. I want to thank today's guest, Conrad Marshall, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Conrad on Twitter at Conrad Marshall and read his work in Good Weekend Magazine. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. It matters. Music is by the one-of-a-kind MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.